Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is the Ubuntu Podcast. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. We are in season two, as you all know episode eight. And I'm so excited to have this conversation. I know I said that about all of our conversations, but it's always a great time to talk about what we do. This is one of your co-hosts, David Curtis, DJC. And we got Hanok on the line as well. What's good, Hanok? What's up, David? This is Hanok Yilma. Uh, happy to be here for another episode that I'm really looking forward to. Yes, I'm looking forward to this one too. I know we got a great guest that's going to be a part of this, but I want to do some level setting. Thank you everyone to who's listening. Again, we are the Ubuntu Podcast, where our mission is to create a radically thoughtful space for the African diaspora to deeply explore how we can create, sustain, and struggle to achieve genuine community and solidarity across the world. We are missing our third co-host for this episode natty bucho nb he's out doing like we said for the last one grown man stuff big boy stuff (laughs) and so we're looking forward to having him back for our future episodes so it's just hy and i also just quick send condolences to to dmx um and his family right now by the time you all will be hearing this it might be a little later but it'll probably still be on everyone's mind you know he's in our thoughts and prayers his family but back to the podcast i'm excited because this episode we have another phenomenal guest i think the guests this season have been really top tier i mean the guests last season as well were incredible as well so i don't want to discount some of the amazing conversations we had then um but i'm just been really impressed by the breadth of knowledge and expertise and diversity that our guests have had this season and today's episode is nonetheless we are going to be talking about authoritarianism dun 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 so now i'm going to kick it off to Hinnock, who's going to take us into more of a deep dive about what we're going to be discussing today Thanks so much, David. Now, as you mentioned, we're both really excited to have this guest on today. Her name is Juliet Iheriohanma. We both met Juliet during our time at American University. She is currently a candidate at the Master's of Public Administration program at Columbia University with a focus on human rights and humanitarian policy. She's always been really insightful and it's a wonderful person to be around. So we'll be hearing from her today regarding the Ansar's movement in Nigeria and the role in which politics, colonialism, the role in which authoritarianism has played on the African continent, specifically in the Nigerian context. So with that being said, we'll take you over to our interview with Juliet. Okay. Well, thank you, Juliet. We're so excited to have you on the Ubuntu podcast. We want to get right into some of our questions. Um, but before that, if you just want to say hi to the folks and you know, let people hear your, your lovely voice. Hi everyone, I, my name is Juliet. I am so excited to be here and to be joining David and Hanok. Um, I haven't seen them like, I haven't seen them in person in forever, but like even virtually, so um, it's good to be here. Oh, that's so true. Yeah, it's been it's been a while. And now we're all in three different states. I mean, it's very interesting how life just kind of works out. But um, I, we know we're going to have a great conversation ahead. And so I want to get kind of right into it. Um, as you know, um, we just kind of shared your official bio, um, but to really ground our listeners in your personal connection to this conversation, 
Can you talk a bit about your experience growing up as a member of the African diaspora? And also, when did you realize that you had some sort of interest in understanding and safeguarding the rights of Nigerians back on the continent? So my father, my three siblings, and I joined my mother and my younger sister um, in the United States when I was about 10 years old. Um, so until then, I knew very little about you know the world apart from what took place um, during my time in Nigeria. The latter part of my life that began when I moved to the U.S., it sort of initiated a period of assimilation that um, I think a lot of other people can sort of speak to this, um, that until you, are, you consciously realize that you've been assimilating for a really long time, you just continue to move through that sort of headspace. And so it wasn't until recently that I really kind of consciously made the um, the choice to just end that process for myself because I think I had taken in a lot of things that were apart from who I really was. Um, so really to speak to my experience about growing up, um, you know, as a member of the African diaspora, I think is to sort of highlight a period of what was for a long time trying to figure out where I belong. I think moving to PG County, which has a lot of Africans, there are a lot of Nigerians here, shout out to PG, um, and having a community of Africans here, whether it be, you know, immediate or extended family members, or even just aunties and uncles that just knew my mother and so kind of embraced me and my family and my siblings, it just made the process so much easier for me. Um, so knowing that I have this community here in the U.S. outside of Nigeria, my home country, has been extremely, you know, grounded, um, especially now as I sort of try to seek to unlearn some of those self-effacing survival tactics that I think I adopted just over the years. And then to your question about safeguarding rights, um, you know, for a long time, um, my focus was on developing I studied international relations undergrad, and now I'm getting my master's of public administration focused on human rights and humanitarian policy. Um, so it's sort of like kind of signals that switch for me from development to human rights focus. Um, and that's because I, I had witnessed sort of this injustice that happens, especially to women, um, both in my community and I think like across like in the various and uh, the couple of countries that I traveled to in, in Africa, Uganda and Kenya, and just also just with observation observing like the injustice that happens here in the United States. And so this the shift for me from development to human rights was was an important one because I think it's sort of directing where I want to move. So now I'm sort of I'm I'm interested in um, building policies and strategies that do secure the human rights of women. And for now, as part of like safeguarding the rights of, of Nigerians, um, I think right now what I'm trying to do is to pay close attention to where people, you know, are leading the changes in Nigeria and in my own way, trying to lend support in whatever way is most appropriate um, so that in the future, when I do lead a career that has that human rights, um, that is, is focused on human rights advocacy, I can know where to best insert my when that time comes. Yeah, thanks so much, Julia. And I think the way you ended that when you talked about the shift that you're taking from development to human rights is really important. And it goes into our next question regarding the NSARS movement. So just to give some context and some level setting for anyone listening, we want to talk to you about the NSARS movement in Nigeria and its connection to the larger conversation about resisting authoritarianism. So can you give us some background on what SARS and the NSARS movement are? SARS stands for Special Anti-Robbery Squad. It's this very grand name for a group of um, a group of officers um, that were sort of mobilized in 1992 to tackle violent crimes in Nigeria, such as robberies, carjackings, and kidnappings. 
Um, however, they soon morphed into the very perpetrators of these same crimes that they were tasked to prevent, and they continued to operate with impunity. Um, in fact, you know, back in June 2020, I believe, before the most recent NSARS protests began in October, Amnesty Inter um, International had issued a report documenting cases of extrajudicial killings and um, torture by SARS officers. In early October, a video of um, SARS officers gutting down an unarmed citizen and the response by the government to arrest the person who took the video sparked the protest that we now know as the NSARS protest that took place in October in Lagos. These protests were, they were led by young people who were the primary victims of violent encounters with SARS officers. And, you know, young people took to the streets to demand an end to SARS and to demand um, better governance in Nigeria as well. Thank you for that, I think, really in-depth understanding because I know a lot of information was circulating around in SARS that got back to a lot of people who, you know, were not Nigerian, um, not part of the diaspora and a lot of other people within the African diaspora at large and you know sometimes we we get on we jump on the bandwagon on things and it's like we don't often even have the contextual understanding to really appreciate you know what are the the real risks that people are taking and against like what systems so i think that was a great explanation do you see any connections between nsars um, and other larger systemic issues in nigeria and then how do you think this connects to what nigerians may have been experiencing you know for multiple generations it's a really good question so so I don't think that Nigeria as a nation has ever fully reckoned with the consequences of colonialism. And to be clear, there's more to our history than you know what took place during the colonial era that has bred the misfortunes that we experience today. But you know, at the wake of their departure, these colonial authorities left behind fragmented ethnic identities, racialized and disjointed from their pre-colonial roots. And yeah, in addition, Nigeria and other former colonies, they were tasked with forming a centralized government in order to prove that they could sufficiently rule themselves. So they were really at the beck and call of these international systems that they had been ruled under for a very long time. Uh, you know, under pressure, and I think at some level filled with sort of this excitement at gaining independence, most states focused on improving their political economy without addressing the political identities that, you know, were entrenched by colonialism. I think for generations, Nigeria has been divided and is still divided along those political identities that were left behind um, by colonialism. You know, our power sharing system is still divided along um, ethnic lines. And even today, there's this sort of idea that a president um, from one ethnicity only represents the interests of his own people when he's supposed to be representing the interests of all Nigerians. And that is a very dangerous mindset for a country filled with more than 250 ethnic groups. So I think it's really vital that we realize what parts of colonial legacy we have inadvert inadvertently, you know, reinforced and actively worked to dis uh, disentangle them from re from actual reality. Um, I think that's that's something that I think, if not addressed, will continue to reproduce and reinforce the same systems that we're trying to fight against. I think you made some really good points there, Juliet. And I want to touch back on an earlier point you made about how you witnessed and kind of learned about injustices that women face across the continent and how you're uh, seeking to support policies and strategies that secure the rights of women. 
So I want to ask you as a Nigerian woman yourself, why do you think it's important that those leading this work are women and femmes and that they're fully visible for Nigeria and the world to see? And adding on to that, do you feel that contradicts with what many believe about gender equity in Africa at large? So women and femmes um, have always been at the forefront of political movements in Africa and everywhere else. And so I think for people to believe otherwise is has more to do with how we have historicized these movements, like how we've talked about them, who has had the power to talk about them. But still, I'd, I'd say, I would say that it brings me joy to see women visibly given the credit that they deserve. Take, for instance, the women that comprise the feminist coalition, which is full of professional Nigerian women fighting for women's rights. You know, when they had initially started in um, like the summer of 2020, they did not have in mind that they would be leading these protests and organizing them. However, they, they took the momentum to, you know, do tremendous work in funding NSAR's protests, um, ensuring that they were peaceful, providing legal aid, and um, paying for the bills of those who were injured. And so I think they did all of this in a way that we sort of wish our own government would, would be operating. They did so with in a manner that was transparent and efficient. That is something that, again, we kind of hope that our, go- our own government would strive toward. So I think women have always been sort of setting the setting the, the, the bar high and living up to the standards that we wish others would, would live up to. Just because I think society does hold us to very high standards, we oftentimes outperform those standards without giving due credit. But I think now it's good to see that credit being given, um, which, is, which is well-deserved. And so to people who believe that, you know, gender equity is is uh, what we see, what we are seeing now is uh, is contradictory to what we what they believe about gender equity in Africa at large. I think I think it's up to them to really ground um, themselves in in and learn history apart from what is mainstream. Uh, because I think the person would actually be surprised to hear of all these other fierce African women who throughout history have been political activists. I could name a few: Wangari Maathai from Kenya, of course. I think in recent times she's really rose to prominence as like a very prominent African woman who's a political activist. But there are still other women of old, such as, and who are even specific to Nigeria's context, such as Margaret Etwell, Fumalaya Kuti, there's Hajia um, Sawaba. So all these women, they led the the struggle against anti-colonialism and brought the concerns of women to the forefront. And so I think it's not contradictory that you we see women and femmes taking a lead in these protests and in these movements. It's just that their their participation um, has often been relegated to the sidelines. And so I think it's really important for us to inform ourselves and to unlearn all these things that we believe about what gender equity is supposed to look like in Africa and really see what it has looked like since the beginning. Yeah, I appreciate you really challenging us and the people who would have something to say around gender equity to like really confront our collective memory around how we see the role and how we see the importance of African women really in the entire process of strengthening nation states, moving through like political challenges. I think we do often do a huge discredit in terms of how we remember things and how we collectivize our understanding of people's positions and and things that are really central 
central to to what makes leadership. And we know that that's, that's not unintentional, right? You know what I mean? And so my question is kind of connected to that because I'm thinking of like collective memory and how we choose to think about the past. As you know, many of us recognize that there is this like revolving door, not just within the Nigerian context, but I think we can talk about it, Africa at large, or even just broader understanding of social movements. This revolving door of change, you know, struggle, more change that these types of movements go through. Specifically with the SARS unit being disbanded and then reinstated multiple times in Nigeria, you talked about this was created in 1992 and there's still conversations about it happening today. How do you think the African diaspora community can lend itself to support this ongoing fight of struggle, change, struggle? Um, That's a question that I think I've had to really I think for myself, like I grew up in Nigeria, um, but I left when I was 10 years old. And then unfortunately, I didn't necessarily have the privilege to keep going back unless um, my family was able to like save up enough money or I intentionally decided to um, go back. So I think for myself and I think uh, for others of the African diaspora, just this sense of removal, not feeling really connected to the issues that are happening, which is why I think moving past those those feelings of um, disconnect it's important to pay attention. It's important to pay attention to what's happening um, in order to support the ongoing fight. It's important that we stay connected in whatever way that we can to what's going on. And I think this could look like in different, this could look like very, this could take like very simple measures. It could look like following Instagram pages of outspoken Nigerian activists, such as the Feminist Coalition or FAUS, who is uh, a musician as well as um, a human rights lawyer. Or you could also follow local news outlets that are based in Nigeria, such as um, Premium Times or BBC Nigeria, which um, you can access in different languages. They have one in BBC Igbo that I've been um, following for a while now. And like they read all the news in Igbo and the comments are in Igbo. And it is a struggle for me to kind of um, understand everything, but it's worth it because I feel like I am I am sort of um, working that part of my brain that knows Igbo, but has slowly um, forgotten it, um, unfortunately. And if you can't get involved, I I think you could still find find out those who are commit, committed to the change and supporting them. Um, if there's a change that you think that your U.S. policymakers can have influence over, write to them and ask them to speak out and support. Um, we do Nigerians make up a large portion of their constituents, and so our collective voice matters when we um when we when we put it together. Um, so I think these are just different ways that I think we can still we can still um lend um lend support um where we are thanks so much i think you know those are all really useful resources for for us and for all of our viewers as well even when we talked about whether it be following activists or listening to, to the news in um, nigerian languages or even writing to policymakers those are all like you said really useful so i wanted to ask you are there any important developments that are happening right now with the nsars movement that might not be catching people's attention at the moment so the response by the nigerian government has really been uh, unfortunate so they've taken retaliatory actions against those who led the protests and have tried to dismiss any sort of culpability they had in the Lakey Tollgate massacre and by either trying to pin it on rogue military officers, police officers, or completely denying that it ever happened. Some sort of fabricated event to um, draw a schism between Nigerian citizenry. So these actions we know are very, they're very predictable. It's what happens when a so-called democratic government that is an 
actually committed to the process of democratization responds to the needs of its citizens. It's unfortunate, it's predictable. Again, I think uh, from what I've read, those are the most recent developments. I think there was a panel created to investigate the Tolgate massacre, but from what I've read, it hasn't really come much, not much has come to fruition um, since then. I appreciate you giving those updates because oftentimes we see that really important movements like the NSARS movement kind of balloons in popularity and what it's kind of the natural effect of things that go viral a lot of times it's like you're in the limelight for a reason and for like a season and then you kind of fade out and I think we have to do better in terms of our own ability to really lean into ongoing um, grassroots movement work and not see it as like a fad and not see it as um oh okay well it's not trending anymore so it's completely out of my realm of questioning um, because I don't think that that it does a huge disservice um, and trivializes important work and we're talking about you know you're mentioning a complete denial from the government and from political class saying that yeah this didn't happen like it's outrageous we saw it all over the world (laughs) and so I think now is more important like you said to lean into what's going on to follow different people who are still on the ground still doing that work at the local level and this is again connected to what I'm about to ask I I know that I don't know if you would consider yourself you would self-proclaim that you're a pan-Africanist but I definitely just from knowing you and and even how you mentioned you know you spent time in Uganda you spent time in Kenya you have a an understanding of what it means um the interconnections of like the African experience both embodied but I also think you've really shown that and demonstrated it through your education and your work so I am curious for those who might say well either I don't belong to a country in Africa directly or I'm not Nigerian I'm Ghanaian I'm Kenyan I'm South Africa you know whatever it's not my fight or it doesn't affect me what's happening there what would your challenge to them be in response so I think to those people, I would simply say that you're you're missing out. You're missing out on, a, on what I think is a historical moment. I think these types of fights, these protests, um, they have the effect of you know stretching our political imagination, even if we don't realize concrete reforms. And so what I said before about the response by the government has been unfortunate and predictable. But what it has done to the mindset of the citizenry that young people could come together despite their um, ethnic differences in a country such as Nigeria, given everything that I mentioned already about the political identities entrenched by colonialism, like against this background, when you have a movement that goes above and beyond these ethnic identities and young people who are going to be alive to see their countries change, come together in unity, that is powerful, that that is significant. I think to those people who feel like they're not involved or like it's not, it doesn't have, it has very little um, to do with them. I sympathize in a sense with them because I'm sure they might have other things going on in their lives, but I also would like to challenge them by saying that like, you know, this is a historical moment. This is significant. I'm I'm going to pull out a MLK quote as well because I think this question is just like fit in. But yeah, um, MLK said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. The other part of this quote that I think is equally as poignant is that we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. 
destiny. Like that really speaks to how connected we are to each other's well-being, especially as Black people. You know, anti-colonial movements had support from African-American civil rights leaders. The civil rights movement inspired anti-apartheid activists. So all these movements have benefited all of us today. And so in like they demonstrate how interconnected our push for change, our well-being um, are so tangled up with each other, whether we are in Ghana, Nigeria, South Africa, or whether we are Black people living in the UK or here in the US. Perfect. I just loved the way you answered that. It's so beautiful. And no one reads that part of the MLK quote. Um, and so I appreciate that you even, um, I just thank you for that. Such beautiful answers, beautiful responses. Thanks so much, Julia. I think you ended that on a very powerful note. So yeah, just to add, how can we stay in touch with you? How can our viewers stay connected with you to see what you're doing and what you're thinking? Um, so yeah, like I'm in grad school right now and I'm just figuring out what my next steps will be. But um, just be on the lookout, I guess, when I make my big reveal, um, it'll be a surprise to both you and I. <laughs> but no, seriously, I think um, I'm still really trying to figure out like how, where I I want to get involved again where i want to insert myself in all these powerful um all these powerful movements all these all this work that is being done to push the needle a little bit further and grad school has been helping me like has been giving me ideas but i still need to figure out a concrete way to channel it into actionable steps um but yeah i will reach out to you too if ever if anything ever comes up and i need and i need it advertised or something like that that's me for now definitely because you you an absolute tour de force and we people need what you have they need your institutional knowledge they need your experience so whenever you take what you're doing to the public please let us know and we will be advocate supporters as well as rally around any of our listeners to engage in all the meaningful stuff that we know that you're going to do so thank you so much Juliet. this was incredible it was nice to have this little reunion of ours it was touching to me and i definitely i miss these kind of conversations on an ongoing basis being at school i know you get you still have the school life but i think it's really refreshing well thank you so much to to our listeners we appreciate you tuning in remember to connect with all that we're doing on social media you like you follow us facebook instagram twitter the full gambit we're gonna have episode links um connecting to some of the things that we've talked about in this interview as well as the episode at large um and so everyone have a great day or night whenever you're listening to this um enjoy yourself, your loved ones, and I think we're going to sign off. Thanks again, Hanak. Thank you so much, Juliet. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Ubuntu Pod and on Facebook at The Ubuntu Podcast. Make sure to like, follow, and subscribe. You can listen to us on both Apple and Spotify as well. Mm-hmm.